Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Isaiah 13 and 14, some in the 20s and then 30. There's some stuff that Come Follow Me is skipping, but we're going to try and cover most of that stuff. So the best of what's in there, and we're going to try and do the best of what's not. I want to remind everyone some keys that Nephi gave us to better understand Isaiah. We mentioned these in our last podcast, but just briefly, we're going to need all three of these today. Nephi says that he wanted his people to see Isaiah. I think that's absolutely crucial that you picture it. For example, last week we talked about that sacrifice of Christ in the premortal life. Can you just picture the expressions on all of our faces as Jesus was laid on that altar and offered as a sacrifice? Can you picture that? Can you feel what Isaiah must have felt when it touched his lips? And so, You've got to jump in there and see it. That'll become very critical this week as we talk about some beautiful imagery that needs to be seen. Number two, Nephi said that he had an advantage in understanding Isaiah because he knew concerning the regions roundabout. You've got to do a little digging into, okay, what is a fitch? What is a cumin? What did rye do anciently with their crops? You may need to do a little research. Now, that's the beauty of podcasting with Mike Day, because he's just going to do a lot of the region's roundabout information and say, here's something that you need to know about that history. But then the third thing that Nephi said multiple times in the Book of Mormon is, you have to liken. You have to find, how am I like that? How am I like this experience of Satan going to hell? How is that like my life? And you've got to say, how is that like me? So see it, dig a little bit and understand it, and then liken it. Now, those are the keys that Nephi gives to better understanding Isaiah. Now, that being said, let's jump into this week's, and we'll start with 13, which kind of sets us up for all of these chapters. 13 is a prophecy about the destruction of Babylon. Now, remember that Jesus said in 3 Nephi that Isaiah's writings had been and shall be. So the destruction of Babylon, think of the Babylonian empire, this mighty empire that just rolled over their enemies. Think about the natural arrogance and conceit that kind of comes with that much power. And then Isaiah saying, they're going to get wrecked which is a symbol of every prideful person, every prideful nation and organization is also going to get wrecked. And that Babylon didn't destroy the church, that the righteous survived. So chapter 13 is kind of establishing the millennium or preparing for the millennium or living in a day where there is a lot of wickedness and pride and that the Lord's going to be in charge. Yep. Excellent. The very beginning of Isaiah 13 starts with this phrase, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. Now, that word burden in the Hebrew is masa, and it can be translated as burden. A lot of translators go with the phrase oracle or message. Literally, it means to raise up. It's this idea that, you know, perhaps it's a burden that he's carrying, but also Isaiah is raising up the message to Babylon. Now, we have a graphic in the show notes to kind of see the big picture of these chapters. We're shifting from Isaiah 1 through 12, 
where Isaiah is speaking to his immediate associates, to the nations. Isaiah 13 through 23 are the oracles or the burdens to the nations. He's going to speak to Babylon and Assyria, Philistines, the Moabites, all the way down to Tyre, which is up in the north. The bullies. He's going to speak to the bullies. All these other nations. And really what he's doing is he's communicating to his people. You see, I don't think the people in Babylon are reading Isaiah's stuff. I don't think the Moabites really care two licks about who Isaiah is. But I think these prophecies are given in such a way so that the people that live in and around Jerusalem that know Isaiah will realize that these nations that are so supposedly powerful are all going to go down. They're just like grass. They can be taken out. They can be mowed. They can be conquered. And so Jerusalem, specifically Hezekiah and the kings that Isaiah works with, the Lord is trying to tell them through Isaiah to trust the Lord not alliances with these other nations. Because remember, the gorilla on the block, the big gorilla with the stick anciently is Assyria. And the people that live in and around Jerusalem are really worried, well, what do I do? If I don't have allies, how am I going to survive? And so at the time period when Isaiah 13 was given, Babylon was a vassal state to the Assyrians. And so because of it, they're not as big or as powerful as Assyria is, but they're still a power. And so look what the Lord is saying. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Verse 10, this is a cosmic passage. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. In essence, what he's saying is that the Babylonians are not going to be able to help you. Verse 17, he says, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver and as for gold they shall not delight in it. And so Babylon is going to have, verse 18, no pity. And creatures of chaos will dwell there. Verse 21, the wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. Their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. Owls shall dwell there. We have all these examples of unclean beasts. Even verse 22, I love the phrase, and dragons in their pleasant palaces. And so whatever you think Babylon is, it isn't what you think it is. Now, We see this theme throughout these passages, and big picture, I think an application would be something like this. If a missionary is teaching a family the gospel, and the father says, I have to work seven days a week, and I have to smoke these cigarettes to have the energy to go to work, and I have to do these things to provide for my family, there's this element of trust that has to be established between that person and the Lord, where the missionary looks at the individual and says, I promise you. If you live the word of wisdom and you find a way to keep the Sabbath day holy, the God of heaven will bless your family. He is greater than all of the earth. Yeah. It reminds me of, I remember one time I was watching a sort of a documentary about the opioid crisis in America, and there's this one scene where this young individual who's addicted to opioids is told by her parents, you need to come to church. You need to feel the spirit. And she says, I don't know anything about the spirit, but I know this works. And she's holding the pills. We can get lost in the weeds of the politics of Moab or Edom or Egypt. But I think one application of these passages is the God of heaven will bless your family. Yeah. Don't ally with Babylon. Don't think they're great and fantastic because they're going to fall. They're coming down and don't be caught in that. 
Now watch how that transitions beautifully into chapter 14 to one of my absolute favorite passages of Isaiah and the idea of let's go into hell with Lucifer. And there's a lesson we all need to learn about what happens when Satan goes into hell. And that's chapter 14. So starting in verse 4 of 14, take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Say, how hath the oppressor ceased? How hath the golden city ceased? In other words, this majestic, powerful city is going to go down. And it's like Satan going down. Verse 5, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. And you begin to see he's transitioning. He's beginning to compare Babylon with Lucifer himself. Verse 6, he who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke. If that's not a description of what Lucifer will do to you, I can't find a better one than that one. He will smite you with a continual stroke. He will kick you when you're down. He will not let up. And it sounds like that that's how Babylonia was as well, that they would kick you when you were down and take everything away. But that continual stroke is going to end. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Now verse 9, let's go into hell with Lucifer. Let's see what kind of reception he gets. Verse 9, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. Now, tell me why. You've got to see this. Picture this. When word comes to the inhabitants of hell that Satan's on his way, they wake each other up. They stir up the dead. Now, are they going to cheer him on because they love him and they're going to go praise his entrance? You know that's not the case, right? They're stirring each other because they hate this man. They blame this man. It's like prisoners who blame the prosecutor or the judge who put them there. They blame Satan for being in hell, and now he's coming. So they're waking everyone up. Hey, he's coming. Let's go. Now, what are they going to do? What are they planning on doing? Look at verse 10. They can't cause him physical harm. I don't know how spirits hurt spirits by banging them and hitting them, but there's a way to hurt Satan more than physical. They're going to mock him. They're going to mock his pride. So they're planning on when Satan shows up, here's what they're going to say. Verse 10, all they shall speak and say unto thee. Now feel the venom in their voices. Are you become weak like us? Art thou become like unto us? Do you sense the hatred they have towards him and they want to hurt him? They want to get vengeance on the man they blame for being in hell. And so they're waking each other up and they're planning their retribution. Verse 12, they're going to say, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, thou son of the morning? They're planning on mocking him. They are standing ready to unleash all the venom that they have against him, and he walks in. Verse 16 is absolutely beautifully written scripture. They that see thee, shall narrowly look upon thee. Picture that. What is a narrow look? Picture a group of people wanting to beat someone up, and then he walks in, and they look narrowly upon him. 
What? They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, What? Is that him? What? That's Lucifer? You're kidding. That's not him. Is that really him? Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake kingdoms? This is the one? All of that anger, all of that frustration, all of their blame for where they are has been centered on this man. And then when he walks in and they picture what an absolute nothing he is, their anger turns towards themselves. How could I have been so foolish and fallen for that? Now, Isaiah's talking about don't make alliances with the bad guys. Don't join them. Don't be their friends because they're really not what you think they are. Now, apply that to every temptation Satan has ever given. There's a beautiful scene in Hollywood that portrays this in The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember what Dorothy and her her cohorts thought Oz was? They thought Oz was this mighty, powerful, floating head that shot fire and flames and shook the earth. That's what they thought Oz was. And as long as they thought that, they were willing to march into the Wicked Witch's palace. They were willing because they thought Oz was mighty and powerful and could help them. But in the end, do you remember that scene where Toto pulls the curtain back and Dorothy realizes what Oz really is? That's what Isaiah is describing here. If we could see sin and transgression and Lucifer and all of his temptations for what they really are, they are simply an old man behind a curtain who cannot get you back to Kansas, Dorothy. They cannot bring what you think they can bring. They cannot help you. But Jesus can. So don't get caught up in what you think Oz is, what you think evil will do. The temptation is never as good as you think it's going to be. That's the mirage. That's the deception. He is simply an old man behind a curtain. And when you finally see Lucifer, you will narrowly look upon him and say, what? Is that the guy? How could I have been so foolish? Now, he's really not speaking to Lucifer. He's not warning Lucifer in this. He's warning us to not be fooled by him. Not give him more majesty and grandeur than he really has. He is nothing, and he can't help you, and he can't make your life better. So don't be fooled. I just love this image. You've got to see it. And once you do, look around your life and say, am I falling for it somewhere? Is there some temptation of Lucifer that I'm falling for that is really nothing but an old man behind a curtain and someday I'm going to realize never really did have any power or glory or enjoyment that I thought it did? Don't be fooled. Babylon is coming down. It's kind of like the uh, 
the extravagance of these rulers, but when they're stripped of their articles of kingship and their robes, they're just a person. And that kind of reminds me of verse 22, as you were talking. Verse 22 says, the Lord says, I will rise up against them, saith the Lord, cut off from Babylon the name, the remnant, the son, and the nephew. Now, whenever I read these kind of passages, I like to reverse them. So what do the covenant saints get? The covenant saints receive the name. A remnant will return, Isaiah says, and they will have seed. And then look at verse 23 of Isaiah 14. Speaking of Babylon, I will make it Babylon for the bittern and the pools of water I will sweep with the besom of destruction. So the opposite of that would be fertility, that the land will have fertility and the waters will be good. I also see the reversal in 14, 1, 2, and 3. Look in verse 1. In verse 1, the Lord says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel. And then look in verse 2. The people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them. So Babylon's palaces are possessed by Israel. And the end of verse 2 says, They, the Israelites, shall rule over their oppressors. So it's this reversal. But also, these chapters are in direct parallel with the 47th chapter of Isaiah. Now, for those of you, there's some out there that question all of Isaiah being a unified work. Uh, Abraham Gileadi has written some great books on this, and he's a proponent. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, and he's a big proponent of the unity of Isaiah. And so for those of you that are interested, what he's done is he's actually charted the way Isaiah actually is paralleled. And to him, these chapters, chapters 13 through 23, he calls this humiliation and exaltation is what he calls this. These chapters are in direct parallel with the 47th chapter of Isaiah. And in the 47th chapter of Isaiah, Babylon is stripped from her throne and she's cast down to the ground. And so we put his chart in the show notes right at the front end so you can see it. You can actually read the chapters in Isaiah in the front that have a corresponding parallel to the chapters in the back. But as I read 13 and 14, I see a direct parallel between these passages and the 47th chapter where she, meaning Babylon, is cast down to the ground. I call this the great exchange. In fact, just briefly, just go there to 47. I know we'll cover it in a little bit, but just take a quick look at this, this verse. In 47 of Isaiah, it says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne. So if you look at that verse and you keep going through the 47th chapter of Isaiah, you see that Babylon is cast to the ground. Well, this is the great exchange. You see in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, we read this. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So Zion, who's been in the dust, takes Babylon's throne. Babylon, who's been on the throne, sits down in the dust. And so I really like that as an image because Isaiah is doing this all over the place. Now, do you see why Nephi would include these chapters in his insertion in the Book of Mormon? Because Nephi's coming out of Jerusalem just at that height where Babylon's going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. And so clearly this must have brought great comfort to Nephi in saying that 
They're not that tough. They're not going to stand. That righteousness will conquer. I don't need to be afraid of the bully because goodness will prevail. And so that's why I think Nephi included these chapters, because he was trying to say to us in the future and to his own people, look, as tough as they are, they're not going to stand, and God will prevail. Excellent. The rest of 14, of Isaiah 14, talks about the breaking of the Assyrian. If you look in verse 25, the Lord says, I'm going to tread him underfoot. And then we have uh, verse 29. I'm just going to read this. This is Isaiah 14, 29. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestinian, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed The needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy root with famine. He shall slay thy remnant. Hail, O gate, cry, O city, thou whole Palestinia art dissolved. For there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. Generally in Isaiah, the enemies are going to come from the north. And we also read this historically. This happens. These passages in Isaiah 14 can be kind of confusing, and I'm not here to settle it for you. I I see that there's lots of ways to read it, but at least according to one scholar, his name is David Butler, Isaiah is speaking in code. All this political stuff that's going on, Isaiah is using that as window dressing to really teach a few things. And mainly it's about Jesus, but it's also about the temple. And liturgically, what's going on in the temple in Isaiah's day, at least according to Butler, and I think there's really strong evidence in his argument to back this up, is that they're changing the way they're doing the temple. Now, we had him on our show a a couple years ago, and you can go and listen to that. But essentially, I would say it's pretty sound scholarship to say that religiously they're changing things the way they understand God. That's clearly happening. And Nephi gives us permission to say, yeah, this is going on where Nephi says they're taking away plain and precious things. So, What we have in verse 14 is a series of priests. We have a priest who's killed, his rod is crushed in verse 29, and then we have what's called a a cockatrice that comes forth, or a zephyr. And then after that, we have a seraph, or a fiery flying serpent. One way to look at this is that there's a priest that's been killed, and they've replaced him with somebody who's bad. This is the whole, they're going to exchange light for darkness. If you remember last week when we talked about this on Isaiah 5.20, where it says, you know, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, or who put darkness for light and light for darkness, or who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's this exchange where they're changing things. And Butler's contention is they're actually taking out the good guys and putting in their own false priests. And this shouldn't be too much of a stretch for us as Latter-day Saints to wrap our brains around because we have this going on in Mosiah where King Noah swaps out the priests and he's putting in his own guys. And so in verse 29, liturgically, what David Butler presents is this idea that the first priest is this rod, and he kind of represents the Moses character. If you liturgically go to the temple, there's the court, and then there's the main room that precedes the Holy of Holies. And so Moses brings you to the court. And then the next priest, that's going to be the Zephyr. That's the Elias figure that cries out and says, make straight the way of the Lord. And Elias's job is to get you to the veil. Once you get to the veil, then there's this Melchizedek priest, the fiery flying serpent, and his job is to bring you to the Father. So that's why there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament where Melchizedek can also be read as Jesus, because what is Jesus? He is a Melchizedek. 
He is a king of righteousness. That's what he is. I clearly think that there's some code speak going on in Isaiah. I happen to find this fascinating that liturgically, Isaiah is also teaching about the temple in the midst of all this political wrangling that's going on. And so if you're interested in this idea, we're going to give you stuff that you can read and you can kind of go down this road for those of you that are interested. So after we leave 14, from 15 to 23, those are kind of getting skipped. We're not necessarily covering this in Come Follow Me, but I just want to briefly give you an overview of them. 15 and 16, uh, those chapters cover the burden of Moab. And then in the 17th chapter of Isaiah, it's the burden of Syria. Now, Syria is north of Israel, which is north of Judah, and Moab is to the east of Judah. And so these are passages that essentially talk about the desolation of the land. I mean, just a couple verses, 15.6, where it says, there is no green thing, or 15.9, the waters will be full of blood. And then in the 16th chapter, verse 6, Moab is chastised for the pride of his haughtiness. And so that kind of gives you a big picture of what's going on. If you look in chapter 17, verse 1, the burden of Damascus, that is Syria. And it says that in verse 1 that it will be a ruinous heap. Now, some of these places were literally destroyed, but there's other passages that we could say are probably more cosmological, meaning that this is a spiritual reading, maybe not necessarily a 100% physical reading of the text. So if you go to 18, we don't really know what the land is. Most commentators are going to say it's probably Nubia, which is Cush in Hebrew. I just want to throw this out there. There are some quotes by Hiram Smith where he speaks that this could possibly, chapter 18, could possibly represent America. Go to the show notes and read those quotes. You decide for yourself. I happen to like it. I get why it's skipped. A lot of people don't know what's going on in there, and I'm not here to settle it for you, but I think chapter 18 is really awesome. In the 19th chapter, Egypt has this burden, and notice what it says in verse 5. The waters shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up. I clearly see this as a cosmic prophecy, but I don't necessarily take it literally that the entire Nile will be dried up. But in essence, big picture, Isaiah is chastising these other nations, but he's really talking to his people. And then 21, chapter 21 of Isaiah is an oracle against Babylon. And then 22 is this oracle concerning Jerusalem. Now, going back to what Mike was just talking about, that Isaiah is kind of speaking in code in his day, that he's making commentary about Jesus and temple and yet using the politics of the day to do it. That leads us to one of the most powerful, wonderful chapters in Isaiah that's going to be skipped in Come Follow Me. This is going to hit very, very near and dear to our hearts. In verse 20 of Isaiah 22, a man by the name of Eliakim is going to be appointed as King Hezekiah's secretary of state. He's his right-hand man. He is the guy that lets you in to see the king. If you want to see King Hezekiah, you have to go through Eliakim. Now, a corrupt servant, a corrupt steward, would take that position and completely manipulate it for its own purposes. But a righteous steward, an Eliakim that was righteous, is going to be so valuable to the people because it's going to allow the people to have access to the king. Now, do you see the symbolism? 
Isaiah's using that political system, that political setup, to point out that there is a divine Eliakim who grants us access to the king, and he's righteous. He's one that you can trust, and he's going to allow you to get in to see the king. So starting in verse 20, of Isaiah 22, it shall come to pass in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. But he's really talking about Jesus. By the way, Bryce, I'm just going to throw this out there before you go on. This is another theme of exchange. We have a usurper that's being put down. We're putting the right person in place. Because imagine a corrupt one is going to take bribes. And you'll never really have access to the king like you think you are. But Jesus and Eliakim are the right people for the job. And so speaking of Eliakim and speaking of Jesus, verse 21, I will clothe him with thy robe. I think that's a reference to the power and the authority of the king, King Hezekiah, that Eliakim is an honorable person. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. Now, Hezekiah can trust Eliakim to have that much authority. He's that trustworthy. And so verse 22, the key of the house of David, that's the kingdom. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder and he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim and Jesus have the key that allows us to get in to see the king. And The wrong people who are not worthy of seeing the king cannot get past Eliakim. But the right people, even peasants, even the kind of people who can't buy their way in to see the king, can come and see the king because Eliakim has the key, and he can open, and no one else can shut. Now, that phrase is also going to be used by John in Revelation. He's going to pick up on that idea in chapter 3. This is Revelation 3, 7 and 8. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. Jesus has the key of David. And that means he can let you in to see the king. He that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. See that reference to Isaiah? Now, this is what Jesus does with the key. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. The atonement of Jesus opens every locked door to get back to see the king. I have laid before thee an open door. That's who Jesus is that you can trust that he is going to lead you to the king. You can trust him. And with that, go back to Isaiah 22. Speaking of Eliakim and his worthiness to hold this position, but really speaking of Jesus, and that we should trust and follow Christ because he's going to open up those doors and get me to see the king. The Lord says in verse 23, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. They shall hang upon him all the glory of thy father's house. You can hang your trust on that nail. 
It is not going to fall. Whether you're a peasant and you think it's absolutely impossible to ever have an audience with the glorious king, you can trust that Jesus will get you there. You can trust him. See, sometimes we really doubt our ability to be saved because we focus on, well, I'll never be perfect. I can never be perfect, so how could I ever make it back to the Father? Well, I'm focusing on the wrong thing. Instead of focusing on my abilities or lack thereof, I should hang my hopes on the sure nail of Christ. And as long as I follow him and I commit to him, and I love him, and I make covenants, as long as I follow Christ, as impossible as it may seem to me now, he will get me in to see the king. He is a nail in a sure place, and that the two of us coming together will enter the Father's presence. Be the kind of person that he can trust that he can lay all of his hopes on me, knowing that I won't let him down, that I will be faithful. You be a nail in a sure place for him. That is beautiful scripture and a plea to the Messiah that we trust him. Don't let your hope of salvation waver because you're imperfect. You are. We all are. But if we follow Christ, if we hang our hopes on that nail, he will lead us in to see the Father. I really like this passage as a multivalent passage in Isaiah. In other words, historically, we're talking about Eliakim. His name literally means God shall cause to arise. In other words, he's replacing Shebna. Shebna was worried about his glory and his tomb. That's Shebna's concern is his glory, and Eliakim is... I kind of I kind of look at this as a type of Christ. It doesn't say it in there, but the implication is Eliakim's not worried about that. So on one level, it's historical. On the other level, it's Jesus. And just like you said, on another level, it's us. And I also like verse 24, where it says, all this stuff is hanging on him from the, the vessels of cups, even to the vessels of flagons. Those are articles that were in the temple. These cups and these, these vessels that were used were hanging on this peg, but that is his family the offspring and the issue, they're, they're dependent on him. And in essence, when we serve the Lord in our capacity, we do, we bless our family. So I like this on so many levels, Bryce. I really like how you laid that out there. It's historical, but it's also filled with images of Jesus. I do, before we leave 22, just want to reference the passage in 25. So verse 25 says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. We put some different ways to read this in the show notes, but I've always been kind of troubled by 25 because we have this beautiful image and then it just kind of ends. it will never fall and then it says it will fall. Another way to read it is for those who don't follow him fully and make covenants with Christ, for those who don't do what he says, for them he will not be a nail in a sure place. You cannot hang your hopes on Christ and then not obey him. And so in that sense, if you believe that you can just give lip service to his name, but not keep his commandments and love him, in that case, for you, that nail's coming out and your hopes will fall. Because that's where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you never knew me. Therefore, I have to kick you out. Now, there's other ways to read it. I'm not going to settle it, but... 
I really like this reference by Mark Brettler where he says, the peg of Isaiah twenty two twenty five seems to refer back to Shebna. I like that. I, that that's just the way I'm going to read it. In other words, there is the nail does fall out. And if it's referring back to Shebna, it makes perfect sense. Okay. I, I know this isn't in Come Follow Me, but I just have to say this, the 23rd chapter, I love talking about Tyre. I love the historical stuff going on with Tyre. Tyre was this city that nobody could get into because it was actually out in the ocean. It was surrounded by walls. I call Tyre the Amazon.com of the ancient world. It was a huge trade city. And so Isaiah gives a prophecy even against Tyre. Notice what it says in verse 15. It shall come to pass that Tyre shall be forgotten in 70 years, according to the days of one king. And then at the end of the verse, it says, Tyre shall sing as a harlot. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to Ezekiel, but I love the Tyre prophecies. I just think they're so fun. In other words, if you lived in the ancient world and a prophet said, Tyre's going down, you would say, no way, that's not going to happen. Like, It will never fall. Now, I'm not making any predictions about Amazon, but just think about this. When I was a kid, there was this store that everybody went to, and (laughs) if somebody would have came to me in like 1979 and said, Kmart will be taken over by an online company, I would have said, what's an online company, right? Empires can fall. I think that's the big message of 23, but I love talking about Tyre. We'll do more later. Okay, now we're back in the Come Follow Me stuff. Come Follow Me this week is going to be covering Isaiah 24 through 30, and then they're skipping to 35. So we're really in the meat of it now. It's desolation and victory. In chapter 24, we come back to the story of the earth, that the earth is crying out for vengeance. Now, you really need to read Moses 7 as you read Isaiah 24, because you get to hear from the earth saying, how long do I have to put up with this corruption? When can I be cleansed? When can I be sanctified? And chapter 24 is the Lord speaking to the earth to say, you know what? It won't last forever. We will wipe it out. We will cleanse the earth, and the wicked will be destroyed, and the righteous will be spared. And that's going to flow into a lot of the chapters that we're about to cover, but it's that idea of verse 5, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. That kind of reminds me of section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants. 24 really is kind of a downer, but Isaiah does this a lot where he gives this oracle and it's kind of a downer, but then he follows it up with hope. So 24 is the tough message, and then 25 is the message of hope. And even in 24, starting in about verse 13, he talks about that remnant. Remember, we've we've seen that idea all throughout Isaiah. There's a remnant that's going to be preserved. And speaking of that remnant in verse 14, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Now, we're going to hear their song in a couple chapters. Chapter 26 is going to be that song. But the righteous will be preserved and the righteous will sing. Verse 16, from the uttermost part of the earth have they heard songs, even glory to the righteous. So yes, wickedness is going to be wiped out, but the righteous will be preserved. 
20, the earth is going to reel to and fro like a drunken man. And then, again, the hope, the end of verse 22, after many days, they shall be visited. Now, tell me that's also not a prophecy of dying and going into the spirit world. Look at verse 21 and 22 and think of one more application of this to the dead. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. See, there's the spirit world. And shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. I think there's another reference to that Christ is going to deliver the spirits out of prison. Yeah. I really like 25. There's some good stuff in here. I want to read verse 6. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, a feast of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over the people and the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from off all faces. I really see John in Revelation just quoting and channeling Isaiah here. Don't you see that connection, Mike? You begin to really see the connection between John's writings in Revelation and Isaiah's writings, and they're sharing themes back and forth. Yeah. And if you look at verse 9 of chapter 25, it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. There's a theme in the book of Isaiah, and the theme is that God remembers those that wait for him. If you look in chapter 26, 8, it says, yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, we have waited for thee. That message of the power that's given to those that wait for the Lord is replete throughout Isaiah. I'm going to throw a couple of references out at you. You can read these on your own, but you want to read Isaiah 8, 17, 25, 9, which we just looked at, 26, 8, 30, 18, 33, 2, 40, 31. I'm going to star that one. <laughs> Isaiah 49, 23. 51.5 and 64.4. I really appreciate Isaiah 64.4, which says, quote, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he has prepared for him that waiteth for him. So sprinkled throughout Isaiah is that message that the righteous that wait for him will be blessed. I want to briefly reference verse 6 of 25. We read it in the English. The Hebrew reads different than the Greek. I actually really like the Greek better. And I don't know why the Greek translation reads differently. I think this is awesome. We'll put the translation in the show notes. But here it is. The Lord of the Sabbath, or the Lord of Sabaoth, will create for all nations who come to Zion upon this mountain, Mount Zion, a feast that they will drink joyfully. Yes, they will drink wine and they will be anointed with the holy anointing oil. Now, why do I like that? I think liturgically what we've got is this resurrection scene where they stand up and the veil that is over the nations in verse 7 is destroyed and the resurrected are anointed. You remember, and we talked about this in Psalms, when the king and queen were anointed, liturgically, everyone who follows and keeps the covenant, they're a king and queen. They're a priest and priestess. And so Israel is to be a holy nation. It, it reminds me of Exodus 19, 
where God says this. He says in verse 5, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a peculiar treasure unto me for the whole earth is mine. And then he says in verse 6, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I would always like to, I always like to say a kingdom of priests and priestesses, kings and queens, a holy nation, a segula, my choice treasure. That's what we are. So when we read Isaiah 25, verse 6, yes, in the English, we have this feast, but in the Greek, we're anointed with the holy anointing oil. I just think that's beautiful. Now, speaking of that verse, let me bring some imagery from John. The connection between Isaiah and John is really rich this week. John talks about some parallel images, and one of those parallel images, in Revelation chapter 12, we see the coming of a woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, having the stars on her head. Now, we're told that that is the church of God, that that is the bride of Christ, that Jesus is married to the church, and here she comes in all of her glory. But in Revelation, there's a counterfeit. There's a parallel image we need to watch for, the great whore of all the earth. Now, the whore of all the earth is portrayed with a cup in her hand. So let's make the assumption that both women have cups in their hand. So we have the faithful bride of Christ, the church of God in all her faithfulness that's married faithfully to Christ is the woman with the son and she has a cup. And the whore who is not faithful to Christ and she's left Christ, she also has a cup. Now Isaiah describes both of those cups. Chapter 25, verse 6 that Mike has just talked about is what we drink from the cup of the faithful bride, the faithful woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, wearing the stars. She has a cup that is filled with wine on the lees, the best that this earth has to offer, the richest, most beautiful products that the gospel can bring into your life. Jesus is going to pick up that idea numerous times, like what he said to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you drink of that water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that is in the cup of this woman, the faithful bride, you will never thirst again. It will fill you. It will bring you life, eternal life. Do you see how he's referring to that cup? Alma's going to refer to that cup in Alma chapter 32, that if you plant the seed and grow the tree and partake of the fruit, it will fill you. Your hunger will be taken away. Now, we're going to see the contrast of that in Isaiah 29. If you don't drink from the cup, it won't fill you. And you'll be like a guy who dreams about drinking and wakes up thirsty. But that beautiful image of drinking from the bride's cup and it filling your soul, has a clear reference to the sacrament, to the cup we drink when we partake of the sacrament, and it fills us. Now, here's the contrast. Nephi refers to her as the whore of all the earth that sits on the waters and is trying to destroy the saints of God. Well, she also has a cup in her hand. And you'll find references to her cup all throughout the scriptures. I won't list them here, but this is what's in her cup. She has taken that wine and corrupted it. She's made it intoxicating. 
And all of us listening to this love someone who's been intoxicated with this wine, the wine of the apostate. Now listen to what it does. This is Isaiah 28, verse 7. But they also have erred through wine, through strong drink, are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. You see that phrase? That's twice there. If you drink from her, and this is exactly what she wants. She wants to intoxicate you with her doctrines, with her ideas and her philosophies, with her dainty things. And if you are intoxicated by them, she will pull you out of the way. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Now, that's the contrast Isaiah is trying to portray, that in the hand of one of these women, the faithful church, there is wine on the lees, rich, wonderful, fill your soul, never thirst again. And then there's the woman that's the whore who will intoxicate you with her wine and pull you out of the way. There's a powerful foil and a contrast between the two. You know, Bryce, so while you were talking, and I'm just like listening to you talk, and I'm looking at Isaiah 28, and I see we have these opposites. You're just laying them out, right? Verse 3, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet. In Matthew 5, one of the penalties for breaking Melchizedek covenants is to be trodden underfoot. And we have that in the story of Korahor. At the end, Korahor and the, the author is very specific. Mormon says, no, he was trodden underfoot. And there's some interesting Latter-day Saint scholarship out there that indicates that maybe Korahor was a Melchizedek priest. He was an apostate. Now, we don't know, but possibly. But then when you're t- when, the whole time you're reading verse 7, this is where my mind went, where it says, they've erred through strong wine and through strong drink. They're out of the way. They're off the path. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. So Isaiah is very careful to say that the priests that are in charge and even the prophet, now who's he referring to? I don't know. But he says they're out of the way. They're swallowed up of wine and they err and stumble in judgment. The whole time you were saying this, I was thinking about the other cup, right? We did the translation bit with the whole thing about their being anointed. And the image in my mind that kept popping up was Laban. Laban, who has the plates in the Book of Mormon, and, you know, he doesn't have them in his hand at the time, but he's stumbling in the streets, and he's out of the way, and I see Nephi, I'm sure Nephi's read Isaiah, and he's like, Laban is the embodiment of this, and what's going to happen? He's going to stumble because he's out of judgment. Now, it's really interesting that Nephi, who was the chaste one, now has the plates. Nephi's anointed king and Laban's in the dust. You know, we have the reversal. I love that. I love this idea of drinking from the bride's cup. And so if you go back to 25, if you drink from the bride's cup, he will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces. The rebuke of the people shall be taken away from off all the earth. That's what's in the faithful bride's cup. And then that's when they will say we've waited for them. Now, that song that we talked about, the singing of that song, that's chapter 26. The song of Judah is that song that Judah did and will sing. 
I like 26. I think it's really good. I, I like that Isaiah portrays the images of the strong city, verse 1, versus the lofty city, verse 5. And so what do we have? We have the lofty city in verse 5, the, or another way to say it is the proudful city that is being brought low into the dust, and then the strong city keeps the truth and is going to be blessed. And so we once again have a reversal. So in verses 1 through 6, we have that juxtaposition between those two. And then in Isaiah 26, 7 through 19, we have a prayer of faith and trust. So in verse 8, we've talked about this, how they've waited for the Lord. And I love verse 9 where it says, With my soul I have desired thee. With my spirit I seek thee early. It's beautiful. And then we get into verse 13 and 14, that the other lords are dead and shall not live. So these other lords are the lords that have dominion over the earth, the enemies of Israel, we will say. Or another way to read this, these other lords in 13 and 14 are other foreign rulers or other deities. They're not going to live. There's lots of ways to read that. But then we get to the image of the saints. So I'm just going to read this. Verse 17, like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery as in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We've waited. Verse 18, we have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come ye, my people." Enter thou into my chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. This is beautiful stuff. I want to talk a little bit about the difficulties in verse 18. I don't think that the saints have, quote, brought forth wind. I think that that's probably not the best translation. So I want to offer another one. This is the Greek, and we put this in the show notes, and this is how it reads. In our belly, we have seized and felt the pains of childbirth, and we have also brought forth the spirit of your salvation. This we have created on the earth, but those dwelling upon the earth will fall down prostrate. Now, that's a radically different reading than the King James. The way I read this is that these are covenant saints that have waited for the Lord, and it's almost like they're talking to us, and they're saying, in our belly, we've felt these groanings, this beginning of a child, and the child maybe one way to read it is as the kingdom of God. We've begun this work, and it's the spirit of your salvation. You see, in 2022, we stand here reading these words, and the spirit of them permeates our lives. And Isaiah is one of these that did this work. And because of their work, they've created this space. And one day, this space where we can have faith and we can feel the Spirit, one day everyone will fall down prostrate before God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and by the way, in the Hebrew, that word wind can mean a lot of things, but 
it can mean wind, but remember the word wind is also synonymous with spirit. So we've brought forth the spirit. In the Greek, it's pneuma soterius, and that's literally the spirit of your salvation. We've brought this forth. Um, in verse 19, thy dead men shall live together, with my dead body shall they arise. Another translation is, my dead body and your dead body will all live. They will awake and arise and sing. You dwelling in the dust, the dew of lights and your dew of the land will cause the Rephaim to fall down prostrate as living ones before Yahweh. Now, the Rephaim are just like the spirits of the dead. And so I see verse 18 and 19 as an image, and I see this liturgically. And if you've been to the temple, some of this makes sense. Or if you've been to a Catholic mass, let's just talk about a Catholic mass. When they bring out the Eucharist, there's part of the mass where you stand. That's the word for resurrection. Anastasis is to stand. And so I really do. Like, I know when people say there's no resurrection stuff going on in the Old Testament, I'm like, no, there is. There's cool resurrection stuff. So to me, the end of 26 is this beautiful image. I mean, big picture, like a woman with child, we've waited, but the birth will happen. In this case, the birth image is this bringing forth of the spirit of salvation and the resurrection of the dead. And then I love this, that the Lord's going to come out of his place, Emmanuel, God is with us. His presence comes out. And so we see this liturgically in the sacrament when we take the bread of the presence into our body. But I see this one day as future. We will literally see the Lord and he will be with us. So that's kind of my geek out moment of 26. I love it. By the way, for those of you that have been to the temple, you should be seeing and checking a lot of boxes here going, oh my goodness, this is the temple. Which leads us to 27, it's that same thing. Notice in verse 1, we're going to slay the dragon in the sea. But in verse 6, Jacob will take root, and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. It's bringing all of those images together, that the dragon is going down, and that Israel is taking its place with a cup in her hand that has fruit that will fill your soul. It's that whole image. In verse 10, it talks about the defense city shall be desolate. So the dragon's going to be destroyed. The wicked will be left desolate. But Zion is going to flourish and prosper and be a wonderful place to come. And then there's 28. Now, notice 28 is another woe. We've been giving woes to Babylon, Tyre, Moab, Assyria. Now, Isaiah sends a woe to Israel, the other kingdom who has the covenants of the Lord, but they are growing unfaithful, and the Assyrians are going to come down and destroy them. That's the gist of 28, is that those who should have been faithful were not. So he's going to talk about the drunkards of Ephraim. Verse 3, the crown of pride and drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot. They should have been better than this. And then we get to a beautiful image at the very end that I'm going to try and bring into our day. It's being spoken that Israel didn't live up to its potential. In that setting, the Lord gives this beautiful little image that I want to spend some time on. Starting in verse 23, he's talking about the Lord of a little patch of ground, the farm, so to speak. Ancient Israel and a farm. He starts in verse 23, "'Give ye ear, and hear my voice, hearken, and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow, 
Doth he open and break the clods of the ground? He's preparing his ground. Now, he's got a bunch of crops. Look at verse 25. When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin? So how do you plant herbs like fitches and cumin? How do you plant small little plants? You just kind of throw them to the wind and scatter them. And then he says, he casts in the principal wheat. So there is a main crop here, and it's wheat. But he also has appointed barley and rye in their place. Now, this is an imagery of how we come into the world. Now, some of us come into the world in very prosperous countries and prosperous circumstances. Some of us were born into the church where the fullness of the gospel was presented on day one. Others of us come into poor countries where just eating bread is a struggle or drinking clean water is a struggle. Some people come into a world where they don't even hear the name of Jesus or know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people come with very blessed bodies that can do incredible things. Other people come with broken bodies. So this imagery is how God places us in the world is certainly going to show some inequalities. So, for example, anciently they planted barley where wheat wouldn't grow. Wheat got the very best land. Anywhere I can grow wheat, I will. That's my principal crop. That's the crop that's going to bring the best profit. So everywhere I can grow wheat, I do. And I water the wheat, but I don't want to waste the other edges of my land, especially the ones that don't get the best water. I can grow barley there. Barley grows where wheat won't, and it doesn't need as much nutrient or water. Fitches and cumin are just kind of scattered here or there, wherever they find themselves. And the rye. Now, if you've ever eaten rye bread, you know that rye is a very strong scent and a very strong flavor. Typically in ancient Israel, rye was the border around the farm that kept the critters out. They hid the barley and the wheat behind the rye. So the critters would come up, smell or taste the rye, and then run away. And what he's saying is some of us are rye. Some of us are put in place to simply make the wheat possible. Others of us are barley that will grow where wheat can't and gets less water, because we can thrive in less water. Some of us are the fitches and the cumin that are just scattered everywhere. Now, you can imagine, as they watch the farmer give preference to the wheat, can you hear the barley just complaining? Why does the wheat get so much attention from the Lord of this farm? Why am I neglected? Why was I born into this country? Why was I born into an area or a circumstance or a family with such few resources? How come I'm not the principal wheat? And then the Lord says, everything's going to work out at harvest time. Because in verse 27, how do you harvest fitches and cumin? You don't thresh them with a threshing instrument. You don't run them through a grinder. You tap them with a rod. You just tap the fitch, the cumin, 
the herbs and they fall and you harvest them. So yes, some of you were just scattered to the wind and you grew where you could and your harvesting is simply going to be a tap. And then he's speaking of the barley. He says in verse 28, bread corn is bruised because it will not ever be threshing it nor break it with the will of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. When do you think the barley stops complaining about not being wheat, not getting the attention that the wheat got? When it watches wheat get crushed in that grinding wheel. Barley doesn't get crushed. Barley is harvested differently. It's not threshed. Wheat is threshed. Wheat is harvested with a grinding wheel. In other words, God will make everything fair and right in the end. Those who were blessed with an abundance like the principal wheat will be held to a higher sense of accountability. They will have to accomplish more because they received more. Now, do you see how this is kind of a rebuke of Israel? You were the principal wheat. You were of the house of Israel, and you didn't live up to it, and you're going to have to be accounted for that. But others who came to earth in less favorable circumstances, maybe a broken body or fewer resources, they will be blessed and made right in the end. That their accounting will be softer, and it will account for all of the things that they didn't have, so that in the end, look at verse 29, when we're all done, we will all say that the Lord of hosts was wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. We sometimes can't say that today in life. Sometimes we look around and say, that person got a greater endowment of blessings than I did. That may or may not be true, but at least we perceive it to be true. That person was born into a country with more opportunities than I. This person was born into the gospel, and that person was not. And in this life, there might be injustices, but in the end, it will all be fair. I'm going to place a wonderful story in the show notes. I won't quote it here. I've quoted it before about a diving contest from Professor Stephen Robinson at BYU who tells the story that he had in his youth. And they were trying so very hard to make their dives crisp and perfect. And there was this other boy who was sloppy, hardly ever entered the water cleanly, but he was doing harder dives. In the end, the sloppy boy won the competition. And Stephen Robinson, with his little arrogance, kind of ran to him and said, I got better scores. And the judge kind of smugly looked at him and said, he did harder dives. He wins. He beat you hands down. You got better scores, but he did harder dives. When we account for the degree of difficulty, God will make it fair. He will hold those who received more to a higher level of accounting than those who received less. And in the end, everyone, all of us, no matter how hard your life has been, especially if you look at someone else and see that life has not been nearly as hard as yours, in the end, when you factor in degree of difficulty, everyone will say God was wonderful and excellent. I like that. I think that's important. 
So that now leads us to 29. We are going to speak to Israel. This is what you've become. But the good ending to both the northern tribes and the southern tribes is the restoration. We are the good ending. And so here we have in chapter 29, this calling out of current Israel and plea and hope for future Israel and a reference to the Book of Mormon and the restoration. There's a lot going on with 29. Let me just say this, that Isaiah 29 is not written the same way as we get it from Nephi. Nephi is going to give us more stuff. That's 2 Nephi 27. Yeah, so I just want to focus on 29. You can break it down into five bits. The first part is the first four verses, which is warnings to Ariel. That literally means the lion of God or the lioness of God. By the way, that's the city where David dwelt. That's Jerusalem. There's a lot you can do with Ariel. Um, for example, Asherah is called the lion lady. That's the tree. So we're back to this image of the tree. The next bit are the judgments upon the wicked. That's 29, 5 through 10. And we're talking about those drunken but not with wine. There are some interesting things going on there. Then the core of it is the 11th through 14th verse where we have the words of a sealed book. And then the fourth part of this chapter is the marvelous work and a wonder. That's verses 14 through 21. And that theme is extensively talked about by the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then finally, the blessings to Israel. Verses 22 through 24 are the blessings to Israel because of this book. Now, Isaiah doesn't explain it. We just have this words of the book that is sealed. It's speaking from the ground, low out of the dust. And so thankfully, as Latter-day Saints, we have this prophet named Nephi, and Nephi is going to give us a lot more information. Nephi is going to quote Isaiah 29 in 2 Nephi chapters 26 and 27, but he's going to add a lot more information. It's much larger. It's like 54 verses. It's almost double what Isaiah is giving us. And so there's lots of ways to look at this. Maybe Isaiah's record was bigger on the brass plates. That's one option. My take on it is I think Nephi is just expounding on Isaiah's ideas because Nephi too is a seer. That's another option. I really like that idea that Nephi is a seer and Nephi is expanding on Isaiah's ideas. Now, that's the big picture of Isaiah 29. I think as Latter-day Saints, we read this and we're like, oh goodness, the words of a book that is sealed, that speaks low out of the ground, that whispers out of the dust, that's verse four, that's the Book of Mormon. I, I see another couple of ideas, big picture wise, and that's verse 18. In that day, the deaf, they'll hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind, they'll see out of obscurity. The book will heal the nations. And I, I really believe everything that Christ touches will be healed. And the idea of the Book of Mormon as that rod, when I touch the rod, who's holding the other end of the rod? The king on the throne. Now, Moroni's going to pick up that in Mormon chapter 8. He's going to talk about the coming forth of the book, and he's going to say, it will come forth in a time when this problem exists, but it will have the answers to the very problems of the society. So don't reject the book. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the meek will increase their joy, the poor will rejoice. So don't reject the book because it will heal you. It will heal all the nations. It has the answers that this ailing earth needs in order to be healed. I like verse 22 and 23. Therefore, thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the house of Israel, 
the work of mine hands. In the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. I guess the reason why I really like that is that idea that Jacob shall see his children. And I really like the message that Joseph Smith brought to the earth that our children are connected to us and this idea of sealing families and all one big family. And we're back to that tree image. We are all part of the great tree, all of us. Every one of you listening, we are all connected to each other. And that's really a beautiful image. One of my favorite things, Bryce, when that app first came out, I can't remember the name of the app, but the app that you can have on your phone and you can look at how are we related. Like we are all part of the same tree and it's really kind of cool. I just like, I feel it in my bones. And what I love about chapter 29 is in a rebuke to Jerusalem and also to Israel, he says, starting in verse 10, the Lord hath poured out a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes. The prophets and rulers and seers hath he covered. If you won't hear the Lord's instructions, he stops giving it. And they wouldn't hear the Lord's instructions, and so he stopped giving vision. And the vision of all is become as a book that is sealed. That's what you are. You are a sealed book. You cannot open the book and get revelation because you've sealed the book with your unwillingness to hear. But someday there will be those who will read that book. And I know there's this reference to Joseph Smith and Charles Anthon, and you know that's a fun little story we have in church history. But the gist of it is that there are those who can't read the book And then there are those who certainly don't qualify to read the book by the world's standards, but because they follow Christ, they can read the book. And then this reference to the restoration, verse 13, he basically quotes 13 in the sacred grove where he says to Joseph Smith, I'm doing this because men draw near unto me with their mouths and with their lips do honor me, but they've removed their heart from me. They're blind. They're sealed books. And so let's open the book, Joseph, and he says in verse 14, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. And I hope every Latter-day Saint just feels that, that we are part of that marvelous work, that we to them are a wonder. The fact that we have prophets who are not blind and not covered and see. Now, what's kind of fun is to watch that word in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 4, he says, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. He says it again in section 6 to Oliver Cowdery. A marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. He says it in section 11 to Hiram, a marvelous work is about to come forth. He says it in 12, a marvelous work is about to come forth. He says it in 14, a marvelous work is about to come forth. And then he doesn't say that phrase ever again after section 14. So I asked myself, what happened in that time period around section 14 that would cause the Lord to stop saying a marvelous work is about to come forth? And that's the time period where the translation of the Book of Mormon into English was complete. It wasn't printed yet, but the words of the book had come forth. And I'm not saying that 
only the Book of Mormon is the marvelous work. But it's funny that the Lord stopped saying that a marvelous work is about to come forth basically at the same time that the translation is complete, that the book that was sealed has come forth, and now we can read it, and the blind can see, and the deaf can hear, and the the meek can rejoice, and the poor can have joy because of the words of that book. It has come forth in our day. But Moroni is constantly going to say, don't reject it. Don't reject it because it is the book that will help you see and give you joy and help you rejoice. Yeah. I really like that idea in verse 11, where the book is delivered to someone who's learned, and he says, I can't read it for it's sealed. And we talk about that historically with Professor Charles Anthon. But I had a friend of me once say, when I was a missionary, he said to me, isn't that verse fulfilled every time someone says, I'm not going to read the book? And then I thought, oh my goodness, what the Savior said about Isaiah, his words have been and shall be, even that which he spake. And maybe verse 11 is being fulfilled right now as individuals say, you know what? I'm not going to read that. That's one possible interpretation of Isaiah 29, 11. Okay, the 30th chapter. It's the Lord telling the king of of Jerusalem not to rely on the arm of flesh. And we need to note this historically, that King Hezekiah's rule over Judah was constantly threatened by the Assyrians. After the Assyrians under Sargon II had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported Israel's leading citizens to the far northeastern Assyrian territories. So after that happened, Judah remained one of the few independent countries in the Fertile Crescent. Well, in 705 BC, Sargon II dies, and the political chess pieces start moving around. You see, after that happened, he actually dies on the Hittite battlefield. And when that happens, there's a bunch of vassal states that are paying these massive taxes to Assyria, and they say, hey, we're not going to pay them anymore. We're done paying you guys. And so Egypt seems to be growing more powerful at this time, and Judah's looking to the south going, man, maybe we should ally with those guys. And then to the east of Judah, there's this nation called Babylon, and they're starting to grow in power. And then closer to Judah, these other little teeny states are starting to exert their independence. And so taking advantage of these circumstances, Judah joined a coalition of states like the Philistines, and they joined up with the Phoenicians, and they're, they're starting to rebel against Assyria. And they also, we think, entered into a treaty with Egypt. We know they sent emissaries down to Egypt to try to solidify a treaty so that they could join forces and tell the Assyrians, hey, we're not going to pay your taxes. And Isaiah is watching all this stuff go down, and Isaiah is not cool with this. And so in the period of about 705 to 701 B.C., Isaiah gets these messages from God where God basically says to Isaiah, listen, this isn't going to play out well for you guys. You've got to trust me. But I really see this and I, and I see both sides. I see Isaiah's side, but I also I have pity on the king of Judah. I mean, you're seeing all these political things going on and you're thinking, I've got to do something to survive. It's not unlike an individual who's trying to pay their bills and there's all these financial challenges and there's inflation and there's unemployment. And at times they say, I don't really have time to spend with my family. I've got to go and earn more money. I don't have time for tithing. I've got to go do this. I mean, everybody has their challenges. And essentially the message of this 30th chapter of Isaiah is the Lord is saying to the king, trust me, just trust me. It's going to be okay. 
Verse 7, he says, the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Don't do it. It will not end well. Trust the Lord, hold on to him, and everything will be better. Yeah. Verse 3, therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. And so it's a tough thing. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm trying to say I just get both sides. One quick thing before we leave 30, do you remember in 29 where the Lord says, the vision has become like a book that is sealed? You've closed the eyes of the prophets. Well, here we know why. Verse 9, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not unto the prophets, prophesy not unto us the right things. Instead, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. That's why the Lord goes silent is because if you don't want to hear what the prophet has to hear, you're going to silence him. And then I love in verse 20, he's speaking out to the faithful and says, look, even though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, hold on, God will make it right. All of us have tasted the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, but the Lord is going to make it right. That's the hope. Now, to testify of that, We're going to end this week studying chapter 35, which is the victory of God over all things. I really think this is important. You need to read 34 and 35, because 34 is the negative message, the difficult thing, but 35 is the glory. I call this the burning pitch and wilderness that blossoms chapters, right? We have the burning pitch in 34. This is the prophecy against the Edomites, and it says in verse 9, that the streams thereof of the Edomites shall be turned into pitch and the dust into brimstone. Some translators translate this as their streams shall be turned into hot lava. It's really kind of cool stuff. It's a prophecy against verse six. Look at the end of verse six, against the land of Idumea. And that's how the Doctrine and Covenant starts in section one, where the Lord says, I'm speaking about Idumea. And Idumea is the world. You see, Edom is really interesting stuff when you get into etymology. Edom is the same characters in Hebrew for the word Adam. And so Adam means man. Edom can mean that. I mean, it it means red. It's this idea of Adam or Adamah, the earth, red, Esau. And by the way, Esau is the settler, his descendants that settled in Idumea. So the idea is that the sword of the Lord, verse 5, is bathed in blood, and he's coming out upon Idumea, upon them in judgment with curses. That's also section 1, verse 36. So that's the big picture of 34, and it's, it's good stuff. I mean, I would definitely encourage you to read it, but the glory is chapter 35. And we have so many cool things in here. Look in verse one, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Now that's not just places and cities. It's also within your life. The desert periods of your life shall turn to blessings. It shall blossom and rose. So listen to this in every aspect. It's the earth, it's Jerusalem, it's Judah, it's the restoration, but it's also my family. It's the challenges that I personally have been through myself. This is the victory. This is when he wipes away all tears from off all eyes and makes everything right. This is the moment we hold on to in the darkness because this moment is going to come. Listen to it, not just big picture, but little picture as well. 
It's beautiful. I, I do see this, Bryce, as spiritually being fulfilled as well as physically. Um, now, it doesn't say rose in the text. Just know that that's a flower that's indigenous to Israel. That I, I really like that the translators went with rose, but sometimes I've had people say, now, is that really rose? And it doesn't matter, but it's the crocus, but it's a beautiful flower. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon were beautiful and productive places during Isaiah's time. All of these areas were near the Mediterranean, where they received a ton of rain and enjoyed moderate climates. And Lebanon is northwest of Israel, and Carmel juts into the sea along Israel's western coast, and Sharon extends along the coast south of Carmel. So Lebanon's glory consisted in her beautiful trees, especially the cedars. The cedars of Lebanon is a constant theme, especially in the Psalms, but all throughout the Old Testament. And so we have this idea of vegetation and beauty. And the excellence of Carmel was and still is productive in her vineyards. And the plains of Sharon excelled in all types of fruits and vegetables. So note how Isaiah is transferring the glory and excellency of these areas over to the places that the Lord has designated. It's the second half of the verse here. These areas were bountiful only because of the Lord's favor. If the Lord desired it, he could also give the blessings to the desert. So the glory or the credit for the productivity of a place didn't belong to the area, according to Isaiah, but the productivity, the credit or glory goes to the Lord. And I love that because when the saints came to the Salt Lake Valley, there was a man who was a trapper by the name of Jim Bridger that said, you guys are never going to be able to grow wheat. And Brigham said, we'll do it. And then when the saints grew wheat here in this valley, Brigham said that the Lord tempered the climate so that the saints could have wheat. I love that. Brigham basically gave the credit to the Lord. Now, they still had to dig ditches. They still had to get irrigation going. But the desert did blossom as the rose. Pretty good stuff. And then he gets to us personally. Verse 4, say to them that are of a fearful heart or a broken heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall water break out, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. God will make it right. Yeah. A highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. There seems to be this message that the highway, the way of holiness that will be there, will be there for the righteous. It is cleared of obstructions, and it's used as a path for the saints that survived Jehovah's destruction of the wicked in his day of judgment. And so these saints, or these holy ones, that come from the four cardinal directions of the earth, they're going to stand as witnesses to the Lord at his coming. And I think a really good passage to go with this 
is Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verses 64 through 75, and also Doctrine and Covenants 133, verses 25 through 34. I would encourage you to read those in connection with Isaiah 35. I want you to think about how the apostasy and how getting to the restoration has cost a tremendous amount of anxiety and effort and pain and darkness, and here we are. Here we are, the remnant that has survived, and our job is to take the gospel to all the earth. And so, at the very end of verse 9, the redeemed shall walk, the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Just like the Book of Mormon has such a tragic ending— and the New Testament and Old Testaments have such tragic endings. We are the glorious ending. We are the return. We are the ones singing songs and everlasting joy and shouting from the rooftops that God has prevailed. We are the last chapter of every dispensation, and that is a pattern of our lives. There are chapters in your life that don't end well. But the end of the book will be glorious. At some point, every one of us, we will return to Zion, symbolically, spiritually, physically. We will return to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon our heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That is true of the spiritual Zion, the physical Zion, and our individual Zions as well. Of that, Mike and I stand as witnesses, that God will prevail over all the darkness of our lives, and someday we will sing great songs of everlasting joy. And with that, thank you for sharing your time with us. We will see you next week when we cover Isaiah 40 through 49. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.